Welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by Segmentify. Hello everyone, this is Carlos again for another episode of the e-commerce growth show. I'm with Evolve, uh, today joined by Bradley Lane, someone that I started a relationship online about four years ago, and I'm really excited to have you here, uh, along with my very good friend, Scott Eamon. So Scott, as, as usual, uh, could you please do the honors, introduce Brad, and then we, we get at it. Okay, yeah, thanks, Carlos. And welcome everybody to another uh, episode of the e-commerce growth show USA. Uh, and Bradley Lane is going to be our first guest uh, that uh, we get a chance to meet and, and learn about here and there. So welcome, Bradley. We're uh, uh, really glad to have you join us uh, today on the uh, on the show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Carlos. Lovely to be with you both today. Great. So uh, again, uh, and uh, uh, thank you. Uh, the uh, you know uh, looking you know at kind of. Uh, your past and you know what you you've done career-wise uh, on the uh, on the way to today. Uh, I see that uh, you started at the House of Fraser uh, uh, a while back. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know a, a, a storied uh, department store uh, retailer, not without their uh, uh, trials and tribulations, right? Uh, and then uh, I've had a you know a long career uh, with John Lewis uh, uh, as well. Um, so we'd be interested in you know maybe uh, you know maybe the starting point is you know what got you interested in in retail and and, and you know it, it appears to me you know, just looking at your at, you know once again at your resume that you've sort of been on the e-commerce side of it from the from the beginning. Mm. Okay. Um. In fact, from the very beginning, my career started when I was um, at college. So back in the day, many, many years ago, um, I wanted to um, work in the airline industry. That was my drive. I did work experience with, with British Airways. And, you know, from an early age, I've always been um, attracted to large brands, um, customer facing roles. So, yeah, I did work experience with, with BA. Um, back in the early part of yeah education as such and then I joined a retailer on a part-time basis when I was at college called Littlewoods so that was that's now become a UK um, catalogue business it used to have a, a store presence um, but I started um, with Littlewoods as a selling associate selling assistant as we call here in the UK and then progressed within the business so retail um, in its entirety has always been part of um, my journey as such. So I progressed into management, working with Littlewoods and then moved on to House of Fraser. So my journey, uh, sorry, yeah, my journey within House of Fraser started on the shop floor, in fact. Um, then I moved into buying, then I moved on to uh, join John Lewis. And that's when I really moved into the digital space that, that we know today. Digital wow, space. Journey it's been, yeah. What a journey it's been. How, how, you know, so, you know, thinking back, you know, to your time, you know, at House of Fraser where you were on the floor, yeah. the selling, uh, you know, out on the, you know, as a, as, as a sales associate, uh, I assume, uh, how important was that perspective, you know, as you moved, you know, to back a house, uh, you know, to me, I think that's 
crucial. But uh, how, how do you, you know, how did it contribute to your career, do you think? Mm, I, I think it was the fundamentals. It's, you know, it's fundamentally, it's so important in terms of retail, talking to customers, not making assumptions or just interpreting data. So it really gave me the opportunity to speak to the end user as such, but also influence colleagues within head office because I worked in the Marble Arch that's within London off of on Oxford Street so their number one store um, and I very much had a dialogue with the buying teams to be able to influence what customers were asking for so we had a lot of overseas customers coming into the store wanting let's say cashmere um, knitwear within women's wear or even cashmere within children's wear um, so I was able to influence the buy decision, but also give feedback around assortment as well and price point. But, you know, this price point's attractive, looking at our competition, et cetera, et cetera, versus um, we can push the price point higher um, because of our customer that we have in, in Oxford Street. Cool. Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things I discovered uh, when I joined Neiman Marcus, you know, after, you know, and, and I was in IT, I, I was, so I did not start from the sales floor, you know, side of things. And, and what I, what I rapidly discovered is nobody, you know, in that back of house side was actually thinking about the customer. Mm. They were thinking about, they, they were thinking about their customers being the business. Yeah. Right. You know, not about being the person that walks in, you know, between those, uh, you know, through that marble arch, Yep. Right. And uh, uh, it's there to, you know, shop, right. And, and buy product. So uh, that was a, that was a turning point in my career. Once I, uh, I figured out I needed to be thinking about the cust the retail customer, not the, not, the, not the business first. Uh, I think so. I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, your roots, uh, uh, you know, from the sales floor, it probably served you well as you, as you moved, uh, you know, kind of up that, uh, uh, chain of responsibility uh, in retail. So, the uh, you joined John Lewis uh, in uh, 2007. Is that right? Yeah, it was about 14 years ago. 14 and a half years ago. So, interestingly, 2007 is when John Lewis launched their Christmas advertisement. I think, which is apparently, uh, I didn't know anything about it until I started researching for our today's conversation, to be honest. Uh, apparently that's become a very iconic thing, yeah. right? You know, for that brand. And it, it actually, when I looked at it, it reminded me, of, you know, that what, one of the things that Nima Marcus is famous for, uh, and, and there's a lot of parallels and, you know, I think, and, you know, the, the Nima Marcus story and the, and the John Lewis story, to be quite honest. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things that uh, Nima Marcus is uh, famous for is their Christmas catalog, right? You know, which they've uh, been publishing for many, many years. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody looks forward to the, the Christmas catalog with these crazy, uh, uber expensive fantasy gifts. Uh, in it. So, you know, it, it feels to me like this uh, uh, Christmas advertisement, by the way, is, is kind of the, the John Lewis version of that, right, of that Christmas catalog. It gets everybody talking, it causes a buzz, uh, and it's a, it's a lot of free kind of airtime, right, you know, for the brand uh, uh, that's, that's, that's very fun, right? You know, I think there's uh, fun is underrated <laughs> in, in our business. Um, so, uh, uh, any thoughts on that? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, 
our marketing teams, buying teams would go to the US and they would bring back catalogs from the US department stores. So um, the parallels between the, the two brands, um, I completely agree with you 100%. Um, at John Lewis, we would look at Christmas as the, um, the opening of peak as such. Um, oh. So as soon as the advert um, landed or aired um, on, on UK TV, certainly that was the main driver back in the day, in the early years of when the Christmas advert um, first came out. And then there was more of a digital drive airing before, um, let's say like terrestrial TV as such. Um, but there was, there, there was a big thing about the advert being the key lever to kickstart peak. And that's when we would land the advert and you'd literally see the volumes lift within 15 minutes because people had watched the advert, they'd watched it again, and let's say they were looking at it on a device, they're playing it back, and then it, it would resonate with them, and then they would go to the website to kickstart their gifting for, for Christmas. I know the clock's ticking, Got to, uh, I have to get it done. Interesting. Yeah, so early, it was, sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 no please early, go. Um, particularly within the UK, and particularly within the toy space, so children's toys, there's always a there's always a, a greater demand than there is stock available. So we'd certainly see a big shift, particularly within the children's categories um, and gifting areas, because people wanted to get those gifts as quickly as possible and not disappoint, let's say, their, their children at Christmas. And I guess we've just seen that uh, that that pressure on availability just multiply. Uh, even greater with the pandemic and the ever-present supply chain issues, right? Uh, uh, with things, have you? Uh, what was that like uh, for you uh, in your world here the last year or two? It's been tough. It's it's been particularly um, tough. No matter how much you forecast, there was an element of we just couldn't get stock into the business. So certainly, the, the message for um, shops were. Um, firmly sell what you have sell it to the best of your ability um, within digital so within the website um, if a product wasn't available we would then promote other products that were were similar that we thought customers um, would would buy into that were comparable you know comparable products as such um, what, what we found very quickly when you have high um, out of stocks was the ability to bury those products. So push them to the bottom of the grid page and show, you know, show alternative products that customers would engage with, click through to the, the PLP um, and convert ideally. But it was, it was incredibly tough. You know, stock was held up around the world. And, you know, the majority of our stock would come from the Far East and, and Europe. But I think everybody was in the same position. Um, we were fortunate enough whereby, you know, we had an estate of stores that we were able to, when, when all the stores were closed in the UK, we were able to pull stock from those shops to furnish online. Right. Uh, and that's how, you know, we, we grew the online mix to 75% of the business during the pandemic. And, you know, early indications, not early indications, indications suggest, yes, it, it will go back slightly, um, that 75%, but 
you know, 65%, 70% in the future is the way in which, you know, I see the business model going at, at John Lewis. You know, I think about John Lewis and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, here's a, here's a company that's been around since uh, forever, the 1800s, I think, right? Um, so, uh, you know, very well established. Uh, Nima Marcus was, a stat, you know, was founded in uh, uh, 1907. Uh, uh, so, you know, when I, when I came there, you know, I, I'd say that uh, leadership was fairly conservative, fairly traditional retail leadership, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I think was eager to adapt, you know, and uh, 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 change with the times, uh, you know, but it, it, it's, it's hard when you have all that history that pushing back against you. Uh, I, I assume you experienced the same thing uh, in your world at John Lewis. So how, 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 did, how did you take that challenge on? What were the challenges and, uh, uh, and, and how did you meet them? I think when I when I joined John Lewis, um, we were we were um, the online part of the business was treated like a separate entity. So we were based in an office in Chelsea. So as a, a warehouse conversion, it was very different to the traditional um, head office building. So head office um, currently is based on Victoria Street in, in central London. But in this warehouse environment, it. it the whole, the whole setup felt entrepreneurial. So um, we were able to very much push the boundaries in terms of leadership and you know trying different techniques in terms of how we support teams, drive teams, change perspective. Um, I suppose one of the biggest challenged, one of the biggest challenges I encountered was moving to head office where it felt very corporate. Um, and you know, rightly so, looking back now, everything was by the book. But when you're a separate entity and you're, you're treated like a startup, um, you know, you can seek forgiveness when, when you get things wrong. Um, but within the corporate um, settings of head office, um, it, it was different. It was very, it was, it was quite tough. There was a lot of red tape. If you were, let's say, performance managing, um, somebody you know you'd you know firmly whichever site I was working on you you know you've got the you've got the law and you stick within the law um I just found that within head office there was a lot more red tape to kind of go through a lot more validation I found working in the entre entrepreneurial setup quicker to cut through the like the treacle effect you kind of get through it much quicker it was it was your move to uh, you know the the main offices part of a consolidation you know an omni approach yeah so um, to to very much win the hearts and minds of the complete business so at this point when I joined it was a sixty million pound turnover of ecom which has now grown to two point five two point six two point seven that the numbers haven't been published for for last year. Um, but it, but it was, um, it, it was very different. I, uh, too, was in an organization where the e-commerce, uh, uh, business was treated as a separate business, 
from the main, you know, uh, the biggest thing that they shared e-commerce at Neiman Marcus and, and stores was the name, you know, and, and everything else was separate. The buying organization was separate. The, you know, the, the, the management structure, you know, was a separate set. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that the e-commerce guys, you know, in some ways were treated kind of like, you know, at least early on as sort of the redheaded stepchild right uh you know of the business uh but you know they saw the light and they saw the need right to consolidate as you know as as you can see happened at john lewis as well and that you know a, a, and become a, a single business because the customer didn't see them as separate that's right right uh, and uh you know the customer when they shopped one or the other wanted the same level of service and the same level of experience and expected product to be coordinated across and pricing to be consistent and all those things right uh, that are hard when they were separate and now they need to not be um so uh as you as you think about that that uh, transition um uh to uh you know uh, uh a business first first let me say uh, did you did you give a you know general you know the percentage of that that the uh, online contributes to John Lewis overall in terms of revenue, do you know approximately what percentage of revenue it is? Yeah, so during certainly during COVID, it's about 75%. But the, the the financial results for last year haven't been shared yet, but I suspect it'll be between 65 and 70%. Which is which is incredible, but also probably should be considered an outlier. Yep. You know, I would I would assume that you would not expect that that big of a gap to continue. Uh, you know, as physical stores open and, and all this pent-up demand to just get the hell out into the world <laughs> uh, comes yeah. around. In fact, maybe it even seesaws, you know, uh, too far the other way. It's certainly going to be a challenge for those that are, you know, part of the reporting teams, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, if, you if you figure, you know, the, the kind of data that the buyers use to figure out what to buy and where to put it, man, that's going to be really hard to do for the next few years because the data is so skewed. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think as a business, we would revert back to um, using 2019 data as a bit more of a, you know, a stable basis. Um, as, a, as a brand, during the period of COVID, they closed eight branches, eight stores, um, and then last year, there was another eight stores that closed. So about 16, 17 stores have closed during the time of COVID um, that we know it's. There's also that consideration as well. And, and Plus, you've got this difficulty with not enough stock coming into the business because it's caught up around the world. And, and prior, prior to COVID, Bradley, uh, what was the uh, e-commerce contribution to the whole, opera, you know, to, to the company as a whole? So it would kind of um, it would kind of fluctuate a lot. So I would probably say round about um, some cat you know some categories would would stay at that seventy percent, um, but overall about I'd say forty five percent fifty percent. Wow, Ooh, that's wow. super high. Yeah, you know I feel like that's that's really high. You know we were pretty we were pretty proud to say you know that you know e commerce was doing 34 percent at Neiman's and that and for here at least in the U S that was very high mm -hmm. a very high contribution 
uh, for online now. Again, over the, over, you know, I'm not there anymore, so I'm not privy to the numbers any longer. But the uh, I assume that the the numbers are very skewed, you know, over the last couple of years there as well. No, very much so. And I left um, John Lewis back in September, so it's it's difficult for me to kind of give you. Um, accurate numbers. So, you know, I, I look at what's available out there within the World Wide Web as such. Mm -hmm. uh, Bradley, uh, what were your, you know, when it comes to the whole digital transformation uh, process? Because I think you, you started as a sales associate advisor, however you define that, especially in the UK. And then it progressed, your career progressed into becoming one of the, one of the leaders in the digital commerce uh, at John Lewis. And I'm very curious to understand what were your typical challenges there uh, that you faced as your, let's say, your career progressed and that the numbers got bigger as well. Can you can you can you comment maybe the three to five typical challenges that you had? Yeah, I suppose um, one of the biggest challenges I think leaving House of Fraser. So my most my most recent role to leaving there was I was I was buying so I was buying products and that was my hook to move into johnlewis.com as such um the role I was the role I did when I first joined was selecting products for the website so if you remember I was saying it was treated like a separate entity um and also paginating publications so we would have a home catalog a Christmas catalog a nursery catalogue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the biggest challenges, I think, coming into um, John Lewis was, as a business, you're a co-owner in the business when you, when you first join, um, and, they, and they do business very differently to a traditional retailer like House of Fraser, Selfridges, Harrods, et cetera. Um, and I found that quite, ch quite challenging at the, beginning, at the beginning, because a lot of people would say, but we don't do business like that here at, mm -hmm. at, um, at John Lewis. Um, we're co-owners in the business. We're not ruthless um, in our delivery in terms of how we get the best deal for the business. Um, so I found that quite difficult at first. You know, one occasion that springs to mind was I had a deadline to submit something, let's say 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The stakeholder hadn't um, sent the information through by, let's say, 2.50 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't lose it, but I was just getting quite stressed out about it because I'd come from an environment whereby um, everything was done quickly to chase after something. Or at, at John Lewis, it was more measured. It was a calmer environment to go into looking back a great karma environment um but I, I did find it I did I did find it quite challenging in the early days of my of my career because it's just you know that ruthless go get it do it now um JFDI just didn't sit nicely mm. with mm. John Lewis and I'm a better person from from working at um John Lewis compared to House of Fraser. That makes it sound a little bit like I was a bit of a dragon there, but I wasn't, I can, I can assure you. Um, and then kind of progressing within John Lewis, um, other challenges was, you know, trying to get people on board to understand uh, your ideas, your initiatives, your strategy, let's say. So 
One that springs to mind is bringing in um, automation within copywriting. Um, so starting from a place whereby we have a number of copywriters, but as time has moved on, technology has become available to automate um, copy descriptions. Um, so the descriptive text that sits on a, a product listing page, a PLP. Um, the challenges that came with that were, were twofold. First was individuals. So at John Lewis, where I spoke about us being co-owners, we were, we were classed as partners. So it was about bringing partners on board on the journey with automation to help them better under, understand how um, robotics can play an important part of, you know, how we get information to quicker, how we get information to customers quicker and how it can drive incremental sales. So that very much was about breaking down uh, how robotics could help us as a business and not necessarily um, at that point risk us losing headcount, jobs, individuals from um, the team. The second part um, with automation was trying to get IT um, on board to integrate uh, the, the tool that I was working with. So this tool was called Textual, um, a small startup out of um, Sweden. Um, great company to collaborate with and, you know, use their tool to our advantage to, you know, launch up to, you know, 3,000 3, products during the course of an average week at John Lewis. Um, but me being me, um, I went around the process. So we did, we did something um, within the team. We had budget available. So we was working off of, off of scripts, Excel sheets between um, John Lewis and Textual sharing data to then import into our content management system. Um, you know, the end state would be IT would fully integrate it. Um, however, that proved challenging to get them on board. So we did a bit of a test and learn um, and, it, and, it, and it was really successful. Very nice. I think there's always, there's always a major challenge with IT. I, when I was an intern, I worked for Siemens, 300,000 oh, yeah. employees, and it was maddening because I was in charge of the, I remember that my, my boss at the time, she, there was this project where uh, we had to, to do the rollout of a CRM. And I, you know, I was in charge of the project as an intern because she didn't speak English. So that was the, the coolest project that I could have as an intern, but I needed to, to deal a lot with the IT guys and for some really simple stuff, for example, uh, permissions, right? I needed to ask uh, for a permission, like to create new users for the CRM in for the IT guys in Brazil, the IT uh, department, and then they would ask another permission for the IT department in Germany. And just that small process would take maybe two days, you know? Yeah. And so I think I completely understand um, what, what you mean when it comes to, uh, to, uh, to having like the IT sometimes as, as a blocker, right? Um, yeah. in, in accelerating some digital initiatives that, that, um, that the companies need to, to implement. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think looking at it, I, I, I do 100% sympathize with, 
the IT team because they've got multiple stakeholders coming at them all, all kind of you know banging at the door saying you know I've, I've got the biggest brightest idea that would drive <laughs> revenue or reduce our costs within the business so you know I, I can understand their element you know their their stage gating their triaging of of work coming into them um but yeah I've, I've got a bit of a, a history for going round um standard processes which very much I you know I I, I did at John Lewis you know, to try and get something over the line, to test and learn, to think of the end state. You know, we were there for customers. Customers were driving um, the revenue for the business and also the profitability for the business. Mm -hmm. And that was the that was the role that was the role of the iLab that I created at Neiman's was that was that role was to be the IT voice that you could partner with. Yeah. So. Who did you find at John Lewis to partner with on the IT side? You know, where, you know, basically one of my jokes I would say is that, the, you know, the only time we said yes in IT was when we agreed to say no. The, uh, <laughs> the, we, were, we were in the no business and we needed to get into the let's try, right? Yes, we, yes, we can try business. Who, was, who did you find to partner with to, to, to do that, to achieve that? Yeah, so over the course of time and after much feedback um, with IT, we, you know, we were, we were given an IT contact. So we were given a lead um, that we would work with to kind of scope out um, business ideas, you know, look at return, et cetera, et cetera. And that helped for a period of time, particularly where I was looking at new vendors to bring in and let's say automate a process or just... Um, you know, reduce costs, et cetera, et cetera. Have, having them um, come along with me to a business meeting very quickly, I could gauge their reaction in terms of, okay, will this pay back for us as a business? Um, how long might take? How, how long might this take alongside a hundred other priorities that everyone's feeding in to integrate into um, our system um, as such? So that helped us um tremendously as a team in terms of um you know having someone there to kind of you know not just validate but also bounce ideas around when you're going out looking for for new new vendors you know when i think about the, the you know the project you know for copy automation mm -hmm. uh you know obviously you know you you you, you enabled more SKUs to be uh, uh put online at a lower cost, right? Uh, you know, so essentially you, you're, uh, you're you're innovating, you know, in the e-commerce space. What other big innovations happened during your tenure uh, at John Lewis? You think that you know that that tipped the scales, changed the game, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that was copy that I spoke to you about. Also, right. merchandising. Um, we introduced robotics. So previously, we were working with systems that required basically humans to do every action, switch it onto the website, turn it off of the website, change the lead time, change the image order, change the copy block, et cetera. Um, so over the course of about three years, we introduced more robotics. Um, so we'd call it RPA, Robotics Process Automation, giant macros, if you like, um, whereby I think it was roundabout over the course of the year, there was 1.8 million 
actions that we removed um, from the web, from humans switching something off, you know, enabling it, changing a lead time. Um, and because the robot could operate, or the robots would operate seven days a week, they drove incremental sales of about 2 million, about 1.9 million, something around about that number. Um, because again, it was colleagues in other teams, other stakeholders that were giving instructions to my team to that, you know, switch that product back on. It's just come back into stock into the business or something has been switched off because it's going to be out of stock for, let's say, 12 weeks. The system wasn't sophisticated enough to switch it back on by itself when stock appeared in a distribution center available for e-com to sell. So to automate those processes, yeah, drove incremental sales, but also made the jobs more rewarding for the users of uh, the business tool as well. And Bradley, all these innovations that you, you would bring uh, to John Lewis with your team, I mean, a lot of them, you, we could say that people would lose jobs or, or not necessarily, but those jobs would, would also evolve because I think that's also fasc what's fascinating about technology, right? So you're eliminating a repetitive task and then you're replacing that task with, you know, the need for brains or whatever. Can, can you maybe comment on how the jobs yeah. progressed at John Lewis? Because I, I, I think that's a fascinating aspect of what you... Yeah, so certainly within um, merchandising, um, we were able to repurpose roles. So you, you would give, I would give my merchandisers other responsibilities so because they are involved in what was probably about a third of their time between 25 and yeah between 25 percent and a third of their time switching things off switch you know switching things on and off etc etc we were able to get them to do simple things like housekeeping of the website you know critiquing the website are we happy with how um, women's dresses was present, presented, you know, one of the biggest categories within, within fashion. So it enabled people to spend more time, as you would in a retail shop, getting your shop in order, you know, making sure, making sure your stall is set and you're happy with how it's presented. Um, introducing the automation within merchandising did mean I was able to reduce the, the team size because it was a fraction of every merchandiser's job. Um, however, I didn't have to restructure the team. It was very much a case of when somebody left the team. So I didn't have a high churn, a turnover of staff, but when, when people did leave, we just wouldn't replace them because we would have repurposed people's roles within the team to take on more responsibility, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking back at, you know, at my time and uh, uh, at Neiman's and, you know, I think one of the big, the big things that I saw happen, you know, was just like you did the copy automation, uh, we had some innovative guys, you know, figure out, uh, you know, how to automate some of the photography. Yeah. Uh, uh, we were using a, I think the company was called Looklet, uh, that would allow us to, to, to take, you know, uh, fashion pictures without expensive photo shoots. And allow them to substitute in. So you know, it felt like a game changer. Uh, you know, all of these things, whether it's you know your copy automation or this, you know, you know, changing the way the photography, you know, uh, assembly line worked or whatever. 
you know, and, and as Carlos had mentioned, right, it, it, it involved, you know, either repurposing, pivoting skills, uh, uh, you know, or, or perhaps bringing some new folks in that with different skills uh, than before. Uh, thinking about that, you know, what was uh, your challenges and your strategy for hiring and maintaining talent uh, uh, during your time? Yeah, I, I think when it when it comes to hiring people, you want to get the best people for your team. I think everybody would probably say that on on these podcasts, most certainly. You want to get the, the best people. What I'd always try to enable was, can I pro- promote from within my team? Do I have the talent within the team um, to promote somebody? I'm a firm believer in when, when you take a, a role profile or a job outline, let's say you look at somebody's, um, yeah, when, when someone's advertising for a position, I'll bring someone in if it's external or I'll offer the job to somebody internal. If they can do about 80%, 75%, 80% of the requirement, I don't want to bring someone in that does 100% because that, you know, they'll be, it'll be, be a walk in the park for them and they'll be off before um, I know it. So I want to bring someone in that knows the majority about the job, but also can learn with the job and can face into new challenges as they arise. I think within John Lewis, there were many a challenge with regards to recruitment, certainly in the last few years where there was a a much greater focus on profitability because the sales weren't weren't coming through as an overall business, um, you know, from before the pandemic um, as such. So there there was a big freeze on recruitment so we ended up being in a position whereby we had we had to drive more talent from within the business from other parts of the business to come into um the econ side of of things um where where sometimes if you know if you're looking for a specialist let's say um like a copywriter you know they're an expert in the written word you'll have a great team that you've built over the course of time, people will naturally leave. There's only so much talent from elsewhere in the business that has a skill to, to write copy, um, descriptive copies, titles, et cetera, et cetera. So there does come a, a pinch point whereby, you know, you have to say, I've exhausted all options within the business. I have to go external. And that, and that was a bit of a barrier for, for some time. But we you know, just like there's supply chain issues with product, there's a supply chain issue with talent too these days, right? You know, with a, uh, you know, the great, what do they call it, Carlos, the, the great Re- resignation, whatever. Resignation, resignation. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, thinking about that, you know, what, what do you think, Bradley, in terms of uh, successful strategies for retention? I mean, I, you know, I think that, you know, trying to hold on to the good folks that you already have is probably more important than ever. Mm. I think it all starts with creating a, create an environment where people feel comfortable. You know, they, they can bring their authentic self um, to work. Um, we, were, we were a really early adopter of hybrid working, one of the first teams um, within the partnership, I'd say. So John Lewis is made up of John Lewis and partners and Waitrose and partners. So Waitrose is the supermarket division. 
um, of the brand, um, other departments such as buying and merchandising only moved to um, mostly working from home just before the pandemic, just before we, we, we kind of locked down um, the London office. Um, so it's, it's, giving, it's giving individuals flexibility as well to work from where they feel they can get, get the job done. Um, and if we look at the, the wider industry, um, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be done in the UK. You don't have to work from the UK office anymore. The industry is, you know, radically changing. But then so too is the rest of the, the work from home um, culture. I, I assume that work from home was uh, was not a culture that was popular with the John Lewis senior management before the pandemic. Would that be fair to say? I would say within ecom, it was um, it was there. We did it. We were encouraged to do it. It was non ecom areas that that struggled to embrace it um, because traditionally they've always been you know, based in an office, particularly if we talk about colleagues within uh, buying and merchandising, you know, they'd be in a space, an open office with samples all around them. So to, to then say to them, okay, now you need to start working from home. By default, what happens to all these, you know, all this sampling around me? How, you know, how the hell am I gonna do it? Um, but, then, but then COVID struck and it forced everyone's hand to make it happen you know ship the samples um to your home address or do you have to see a sample in some instances can you not go off of a CAD drawing you know the traditional sign-off process um changed quite drastic you know quite um significantly for for buying well thank you I mean just as a side I mean it's really a sideline uh but uh uh I think about, you know, the, the buyers, you know, where I worked and a lot of them were there specifically for the experience of being able to travel to, you know, uh, see product in person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, you know, that was a big, you know, they didn't really, I don't think it really actually paid all that well, <laughs> you know, being, being a buyer that, you know, the benefit, you know, was, you know, actually the travel and the, you know, the experiences you got, you know, as, as, as being part of that organization. So now, you know, with this much more uh, digital capabilities and, you know, not necessarily having to go in person, is, are, what do you see that as well? Is there, is that, uh, did that impact, uh, you know, your ability to, you know, fill the role of buyer? No, I think, I think very much there's always a demand for the role of, of buyer. So I think, you know, I haven't been a buyer for what is 14, 15 years. So, you know, it, it would have changed significantly. I, I know when I was at, at House of Fraser, yeah, there was an element of, I'll get the opportunity to, to travel and, you know, um, have all these experiences, but actually it, it was quite um, grueling in many ways. You know, you're always up against it in terms of um, a clock watch, stopwatch excuse me um which meant okay i have a number of appointments i have x amount of data that will, will help inform those appointments i need to source new brands plus i need to try and get around let's say the department stores 
um, to see what's new, who's innovating, what brands are, are people buying into, et cetera, et cetera. I always felt as if I was up against it in terms of time. There was never enough time. As soon as I landed um, somewhere, I was at an appointment, um, working till late, submitting um, buys. Um, and then I was, let's say, if I was doing a, a, a two-day trip, then I was doing the shops, then doing more appointments, you know, trying to scout new brands to bring on board for House of Fraser. And then boom, I'm back on the Eurostar or a plane back to the UK and sleep deprived. But, you know, that's, that's probably one of the big things um, that the buyers encounter. But then during COVID, it changed things. It, you know, it changed it um, for the whole industry. You know, Zoom calls were happening and samples were being shown on a call similar to this, or more samples were being made and being shipped um, around the world to someone's house to, to make a decision, or they were going for a CAD drawing. So yeah, it, it definitely changed things. Um, will it return back to its heyday, if you can call it? I don't know. Um, budgets are being squeezed. Out of the bottle. What's that? I said, I think the genie's out of the bottle that, yeah. that you know, going back to the general work from home discussion it i don't know what the new normal looks like but it doesn't look like the old normal agreed yeah. agreed massively yeah well um one uh question i'd like to to to, to ask you you because you've lived through you know sort of the evolution of e-commerce when you started you you, you started you know in uh, on the e-commerce side back in 2007 that's still pretty early mm. in the game you know i think uh uh i started working on it you know even earlier than that you know and uh, uh in previous roles i don't even want to tell you how far back it goes but uh it goes back to the very primitive beginnings uh, of e-commerce. So, you know, if, uh, you know, I think, you know, you've seen it evolve from, hey, let's just take our catalog and we'll make it online, mm. right? You know, uh, to, I, you know, I think all sorts of uh, attempts to, you know, add personalization and recommendations and, you know, things that uh, allow, you know, a better experience, you know, for the customer, uh, as well as this consolidation of uh, the physical and the and the digital businesses into a more uh, uh, comprehensive combined approach, right? I'm trying to avoid using the word omnichannel uh, poorly uh, there. Uh, so what's next? You know, let's, uh, you know, and I guess I'm sort of, you know, eking towards the, you know, all this, you know, hype around the metaverse, which uh, you know, another name for that is, you know, the next generation web, right? You know, uh, uh, what do you think? What are, where are we going? Oh, the metaverse. You know, if I, in all honesty, I'm still trying to get my head around it as well. Um, but th there are people that are, um, I say dabbling into it, you know, arguably, you could say they, 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 they're kind of going, they're going for it, aren't they? You know, a brand like H&M, a presence in the, the metaverse, um, how long would it take? And this, and, and by no means is this meant as a, a criticism. How long would it take someone like John Lewis to move into the metaverse? I'd honestly say a few years. Um, never the quickest or the first to to market in that sense. Um, strategically, they'll be sitting, watching, uh, listening, 
watching other people fail um, and, and then probably dip their toe into it, but very much um, a, a test and learn approach. And that's very much how the whole e-com business was, was built up is through, is through testing and learning. I think as we move forward and we look wider and we talk about technology in the future, you know, it's here now, isn't it, in terms of voice and voice recognition. Um, if I talk, if, if, if I mention the name of my device, it will start talking back to me now without a doubt. Um, you know, that will, that will only, that will only just, that will only get better. Um, that will be more and more fine tuned and become quite normal. You know, you can talk to your TV now. I turn, I turn to my, to my side because my TV's over there in case anyone thinks I've got a bit of twitch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the way in which the industry will move forward, people will want more and more quicker and quicker. Um, and sustain, sustainability plays a key part in that. People, customers, you know, the younger generation in particular want full traceability about a product, whether that's something they're buying or something they're eating. So we need to be more comfortable um, being able to um, present that information or be able to, you know, capture that information, um, whether we're working with vendors, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, the future generations, in my opinion, they care more about where something's coming from when they want that trait, that full traceability. It was uh, was that something you felt uh, at at John Lewis? Let's say I'm 36 years old and I have two daughters. Uh, I think my generation is already very conscious, but when I look at my daughters, they are they are born differently. They are wired in a in a different way. It's it's very interesting. And was that something you felt from that younger maybe generation uh, when they came to your website? Uh, some sort of pressure where they would question uh, leadership or customer service teams about, you know, where's this product coming from? Uh, did you, can you, can you comment a little bit on, on, on that note, uh, Bradley? Please? Yeah, definitely. There, there, was a, there would always be feedback loops. Um, we had contact centers. We would do a questionnaire to one in a thousand um, customers to the website, or there'd be a, a, a feedback document at, at the footer of the homepage. Um, and we had lots of feedback around, okay, where is this product made? What are the conditions in terms it was, it was made in? Um, what are the ingredients within this product in terms of how it's, um, let's say like a beauty product, they want to know whether it's cruelty-free um, and rightly so, and you know, whether it's uh, vegan, et cetera, et cetera. More and more feedback would be, would be coming through, which would then enable us as a business to, kind of look at the facts on the table and say, okay, there's a pattern um, starting here, you know, or there's a thing, excuse me, this is something we need to be in a position to better communicate to, to customers. So then we'd work with our suppliers, let's say within beauty, to start getting a list of ingredients and better information around, okay, is it vegan friendly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. We care about it in terms of our generation, but the future generations, yeah, completely, they're, they're programmed um, differently. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I look at um, TikTok, I look at Instagram, and you just see the way in which um, 
people are interacting with the tools, they're using those tools for information and to very much communicate what their expectations are when it comes to a brand. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Scott, we, I think we, we have one final question maybe you'd like to ask uh, Bradley and a, a final question. And then of course, uh, Bradley, just so you know, uh, you will be invited for panels if you like. It's, it's been an honor. I think you're a great speaker, oh, great. very interesting career. So yeah. Thank you. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. To. Sure thing. Thanks. Okay, I'll end with uh, uh, what do you think the, uh, you know, the, the best ways to bring a human touch back to digital commerce? Um, you know, I think, you know, I think for me, that's something, you know, that I believe is, you know, a missing component in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of experiences online. Uh, and as this, as the digital part of a business, you know, in your case, you're, you're talking these huge contributions, right? It's now the face of the company at John Lewis, uh, as an example, uh, uh, you know, how do we keep that from, you know, becoming, you know, uh, just a bunch of interactions, you know, with bots and recommendation engines? I think, I think there's, there's several ways. Um, something that John Lewis um, went after was, I called it click to chat. Um, so it's, it's managed by the contact centers, but it's the ability for a customer to interact with you, a human customer to interact with another human being to talk about a particular product. So we'd get a lot of queries. Um, around large electrical products, fridge freezers, washing machines, et cetera. Um, however, we were able to reduce the level of returns from, ask, from asking, or you know, from being able to answer some what would be quite simple questions to us. It also enabled us um, click to chat to improve the product page. So for example, of all the queries that went through to the contact centers, probably about 25% of them were large electrical. And one of them was, what is, you know, one of the most, to this day, one of the biggest queries was, what is the length of the cable that's gonna come with the bridge freezer? I, I, I know the answer, it's not long enough. That's the answer. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but where we are able to then um, add that information to the, the product page, or it might have been, what's the packaging size? Because they need to be able to get it through their building or up the stair stairwell or something, um, staircase. Um, we were able to significantly reduce the, the level of returns from having that information on the product page or being able to um, answer it on the, the click to call to the customer. I think in today's world, as we move forward, it's really, really, and it might sound, you know, quite basic. Um, you have to listen to what the customer is saying. So whichever way they choose to communicate with you, how can you respond? So John Lewis were really great. Um, and as I was saying, it's a great brand um, to work for. And I miss the people uh, tremendously. Um, John Lewis were great at responding to in my opinion, negative feedback. So ratings and reviews, which we had um, applied to the majority of our assortments, um, there would generally be a stance of if it was a one-star review and more than, I think, three customers had rated it once, it would come off of the website. 
um, pending investigation, you know, with the supplier or with the, right. with the relevant own brand buying team. Interesting. Let's say. Um, but it's important where someone's negatively talking about one of your, your products that you're able to interact with them. Um, and if you're not, you know, if you're not aware of it, actually say to them, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We'll talk to the buying team. We'll talk to the buying office. We'll, we'll validate the price, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the query was. So we, we got a lot of positive feedback from having engagement with customers um, through ratings and reviews, but also through social commerce as well. It's really important um, whether somebody's complimenting your brand or criticizing your brand, you know, recognizing that they've taken the time to let you know that they're happy or they're not happy with a particular product or the Christmas advert shining example you love it or you loathe it fortunately more people um loved it look like yeah more people love it for sure all right Bradley well that just flew by um you know we've uh, we're coming up at the the end of our hour uh uh, we want to, uh, Carlos and I want to thank you uh, again uh, for taking the time uh, to, to sit and chat with us today uh, uh, and being a guest on the e-commerce growth show USA and Carlos, I'll let you take us out. Yeah. So yeah, I just want to say thank you very much, Bradley. I think it's been incredible to learn about your career. As I said, been following you <laughs> for, for at least five years. So it's, it's great now that we have this this opportunity to sit and, and talk and exchange and listen to you and exchange experiences. So great. And, and that's it. Thanks very much, Bradley. By no the problem. way, one last thing, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? So like through LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Bradley yeah, Lane. Huh? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Go for Maybe it. for, yeah. For business opportunities or conversations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Conversations more than happy to thank you both. This is my first ever podcast. All right. <laughs> well done. Well, what you did. It was great. It was great fun. Thank you again. Thank you. I was quite nervous, but I thought, no, fight through it, fight through it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. See you guys later. Fun.